this one threw me a little bit. There's like so many options what I could teach on. So I'm still like the Lord really needs to nail it down today. <laughs> then I teach it tomorrow. Um, but anyway, we will, I will not be teaching this week's lesson in this class. So next week, when we gather together, the homework that you're going to review and the material that I'm going to be teaching on is week's, week eight, called All Things New, starts on page 147. It's Revelation 21 and 22. All right, so we're ending where the Bible ends, and then that last week of passages that are a little trickier, um, you can work through that on your own. And next week, I'm going to try to, what I'll do is I'll try to compile a list of some good articles maybe some online resources that if you wanted a little more information or where I kind of um, got the ideas that I present to you in that week. And that way, for those of you that want to do more research, you can. Um, in a perfect world, I will be recording that week's lesson and it will go up on the podcast. But I do not live in a perfect world, nor do you. Um, we've got some things going on. Nothing bad, but just a lot going on in our family. So we'll see. I would like to get that done for you, but there may not ever be a lesson on that, but I'll get you some resources. I handed these little things out. October 25th, celebration brunch. You guys have worked really hard, and you've earned just a fun time together. At my house, I have my address there. I only live about five minutes from the church uh, off of Giles Road, which runs behind Bloomingdale High School. It runs in between Bell Shoals and Lithia Pinecrest. And um, so, yeah, I'm really excited to have you over. Uh, somebody asked, how are you going to fit us all in our house? Well, we'll just like spread out. We'll just fill the house and it'll be fine. And it's going to be low key and casual and just a chance for us to get to chat and, and have fun. And yeah, it'll be really a good time. So I know. Yay. So that's coming up on the 25th. So make sure you get. Yes. Yes, that will be going on the podcast. Yes. Um, and I will probably record that in my own podcast studio because Wednesday night, it's hard to tell what kind of, what, what our sound issues are going to be. Right, Carolyn? <laughs> she tries so hard, but sometimes it's just, it is what it is, man. A lot less variables in my little closet with my podcast material. But yes, that will go up for sure. All right, I think that's all of the administrative things. Are you guys ready to dig in to the scripture this morning? We're going to be in Romans chapter 8 talking about Christ and cosmic renewal. Hopefully by now, um, your scope, the, the scope of salvation is, is getting bigger. Um, obviously, there is a very, very big emphasis in the New Testament on the salvation of individuals, the conversion of individuals um, to uh, a life in Christ. But there's also a focus on the, the, the salvation of the, the, the created realm. That, that, that is God's and will always be God's. And so um, hopefully you're beginning to broaden, broaden your perspective a little bit on what salvation is. But we're going to continue to do that together today. Romans 8 is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. We're just going to be covering a little section of it, um, but I'm really excited about it. All right, let me, um, let me go ahead and open in a word of prayer, and then we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, I um, thank you for your word and just how um, we continue to learn. Uh, we never arrive. There's always more treasures to see. 
And uh, I pray that we would experience that even this morning as we walk through what for some of these women, probably a lot of them in this room are, are, are familiar verses, uh, but as we walk through them, I pray that you would just give us um, fresh eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to respond to what you want to teach us um, and this, this beautiful, a little bit maybe broader view of salvation than, than, than maybe we started with when we began this study. Um, but just, um, it's exciting to think and, and imagine, <laughs> imagine what the new heaven and the new earth might be. And I I, uh, I thank you for the, the little insight that Romans 8 offers us, and I pray it would thrill our hearts this morning. And we just love you so much. It is in this, the precious name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. We are going to start today's lesson with a little word study. And the word I want to focus on is the word groaning. Now, this word shows up quite often in the Bible, more than you might have ever even realized, particularly in the Psalms. And I've listed a few of them for you on your listening guide. Psalm 5.1 says, Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Psalm 22.1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from the words of my groanings? Psalm 38.8 says, I am faint and severely crushed. I groan because of the anguish of my heart. Psalm 102, four through five says, my heart is suffering, withered like grass. Because of the sound of my groaning, my flesh sticks to my bones. Now, groaning is an interesting word because unlike uh, suffering or pain or heartache or all of those kinds of words, groaning is a, it's a sound word. It's a sound word. It's something you hear a sound that you make. Groaning is what happens when suffering has intensified beyond one's ability to keep silent. When the pain is so acute, you can't keep it in. It has to be expressed in an audible moan of anguish. And I think it's really telling that this word shows up so much in the Bible. I think it shows up so much in the Bible because it's part of the human condition outside of Eden. Most of us, if not all of us, I think it's pretty safe to say, I guess I couldn't do this if I were talking to children or students, but all of us in this room have lived enough life that I think it's safe to say we have all had our own personal groaning experience or experiences whether it be physical pain, the loss of a loved one, betrayal, miscarriage, infertility, a life-altering diagnosis. Even now, I mean, our hearts are heavy for those just a little bit south of us who are groaning. They're groaning as they come to grips with the catastrophic loss, catastrophic damage that they experienced in Hurricane Ian, I think we should be really comforted by the fact, I am very comforted by the fact, that scripture is so honest about the reality of groaning. 
And I've been honest with you before about how I'm a little troubled by the fact that you don't hear a lot about groaning at church. Church can be one of the hardest places to groan. And that's unfortunate because the Bible, the Bible mentions it a lot. And we would do well not to ignore those kinds of passages. The very first word, place, when you do a word study, it's, it's always good to say, where does the word show up first in the Bible? And the very place, first place, I'm having trouble saying that. The first place the word groaning appears in the Bible is in Exodus chapter 2. If you want, you can turn there with me. Otherwise, you can just listen. But Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 is the first place that we see it. Now, I'm going to actually start reading in chapter 1 to give us a little context. So Exodus chapter 1, verse 8 is where I'll pick up. It says, A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. And he said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further, and when war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave, um, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread. Now, for those of us who spent a little time in Genesis, we've made a very big deal about the creation mandate. Those, that word multiply and spread should like, your radar should start going off, right? It, it's, it's harking back to that passage. So the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and they worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. So very strong language there. Um, there's not a lot of words, but the words that are employed are very vivid. Now skip down with me, chapter 2, verse 23. Uh, and, and what we're skipping, we're actually skipping a lot of really important things. So it got way worse um, to the point where there was an attempt made to eliminate all the baby boys that were born to Egyptian women. Of course, Moses was one of those baby boys. And so we have his whole story there. We have, he's, he grows up and he's found by an Egyptian, raises an Egyptian, all the things, okay? And then, then the, here's where we're picking up. Uh, chapter two, verse 23. After a long time, the king of Egypt died and the Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. They cried out and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites and God knew. Now, even if you're not very familiar with the Bible, thanks to the movie industry, Chances are you know the rest of the story, right? In spite of Pharaoh's stubborn refusal to let them go, God uses Moses to miraculously free the Israelites from bondage. 
There's the parting of the Red Sea, the destruction of the Egyptian army, the giving of the law and covenant at Sinai, the provision of the manna, the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, and eventually there's the settling in the promised land. It is quite a story, such a good story. And that story indelibly shaped the salvation paradigm for the people of God, for the Israelite nation. And, and, and you, we, we, we know that for a lot of reasons, but one of the ways we know that is that story, the Exodus story gets replayed. It's like it's on repeat throughout, uh, over and over and over throughout the biblical narrative. And there's so many examples of this, we could spend a lot of time finding them. But I want to take you to just one, one Exodus story replay that we see in the book of Isaiah. Are you guys surprised I'm going to Isaiah? I sort of love Isaiah. Maybe you've picked up on that by now. Uh, Isaiah chapter 51. If you didn't get to study Isaiah with us, um, there's a whole Isaiah series on my podcast you can work through. It's one of my favorite favorites. Um, Isaiah chapter 51, little context here. Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, had been invaded by the Babylonians and taken off into exile. This was judgment for their, their, their rebellion against what God, against the covenant that God, that God had established. So the people of God are once again in a state of captivity right? They are in bondage to a foreign nation, very much like way back in the book of Exodus. All right, so keep that in mind. I'm going to read Isaiah 51 verses 9 through 11. Isaiah is speaking here. He says, wake up, wake up. Now you might think he's talking to the people because there are many a time they needed to be told to wake up, but he's not talking to the people right here. He's actually talking to the Lord. To Yahweh, saying, wake up, wake up, arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself with strength. Wake up as in days past, as in generations long ago. Wasn't it you who hacked Rahab to pieces? You gotta love the Bible's lingo there. Uh, Who pierced the sea monster. Wasn't it you who dried up the sea? All right, so there we know very clearly he's talking about the Exodus, the dividing of the Red Sea the waters of the great deep who made the seedbed into a road for the redeemed to pass over. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come into Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee. Sighing could also be groaning. Sorrow and groaning will flee. So what's happening in this passage is that Isaiah, he's looking forward to the liberation of the captives Israel from Babylon. But he's doing that by looking backward to the liberation of Israel from Egypt. He's anticipating a new exodus that's gonna happen. He's saying, wake up, Lord, do it again. You did it before, do it 
again. And just as God heard the groanings of his people, then Isaiah is so confident that God is going to hear the groanings of his people now. I told you we were going to be in Romans 8. What in the world does all this have to do with Romans chapter 8? Well, I want to suggest to you that the Apostle Paul does the exact same thing in the book of Romans. He replays the Exodus story. He anticipates a new Exodus. Now, Romans is a, it's a hard book of the Bible to understand. It's a challenging book to study. We've studied it together before, and it was, t- it was tough. It was tough to teach. Um, so there's a lot going on. It's really rich theologically. But there's one thing that's really clear. You don't need a commentary. You don't need a Bible teacher to help you. You don't need any articles on the internet. You just read it. And there's one thing you can pull out is the fact that apart from Christ, every human is enslaved to sin. This is like one main thing you can pull out on your own. So we have that theme of slavery that's running throughout the whole, the whole of, of the epistle. And Paul makes it really clear that this enslavement, it's so bad, it's so severe that even the Torah, the Old Testament law, which was so precious and so good and so central to the covenant that God had made with his people, this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful law leads not to life, like it was meant to lead to, but it leads to death. Not because there's anything wrong with the law, but because humans are so enslaved that they can't keep it. They break it. And so the law becomes this tutor showing us how enslaved we are to sin. We need supernatural liberation from this condition as much as the Israelites needed supernatural liberation from Pharaoh. And as much as they once again needed supernatural liberation from Babylon in Isaiah's day. So in chapters five through eight of the book of Romans, Paul paints the picture of a new exodus. I had never until this study read those chapters with the Exodus in mind. And once you do, it's like it pops all over the place. You're like, oh my goodness, he's retelling the Exodus story. And we're not going to look at all of it, but here's a little synopsis of the point he's making in those chapters. He's saying, delivered from, we are delivered from sin to sonship. We pass through the waters of baptism heading toward the land of promise, led by the Spirit, just as Israel was led by the pillar of cloud and the fire. This is the freedom story Paul is telling in the pages of Romans. And today we're going to home in on just a few verses in chapter 8, just a few verses of this freedom story, this new Exodus story that have so much to tell us about the glorious future that God has in store for his people and for his world. All right, so let's touch down in Romans 8. I'm gonna read verses 18 through 25, and then we'll back up and I will uh, break them down together. Verse 18. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation, that's the natural, the natural created world, eagerly waits with the anticipation for God's sons, that's you and I, uh, believers, to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who suggested it, subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay and the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been, here's our word, groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. All right, let's back up. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings, excuse me, of this present time, this present age, are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. So the suffering of this present age is not even worth comparing to the glory of the age to come. That's an amazing promise. And so the the way I put it on your listening guide there is that the present suffering, our present suffering will be eclipsed. It'll be eclipsed by future glory. Now, I want to reason this out a little bit. I want you to think about the fact that this, this idea, this beautiful, beautiful truth, that our present suffering, however bad, and there is so, the older I get, the more I have to come to grips with the, the depth and width of suffering. And not only that, but how unequally distributed it is throughout the world, that there are some people that suffer so much and other people that suffer not so much. And that's, I'm, I'm just, you, you, the older you get, the more you think about this stuff. And so what a beautiful thing that we know that this present suffering will be eclipsed by future glory. This, this truth, this promise that we cling to, it doesn't, make, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It doesn't really pack a punch. It doesn't really have the force I think Paul wanted it to have if heaven is playing harps up in the clouds, right? Or if heaven is some kind of ethereal or semi-embodied eternal church service in the sky. Again, there are a small percentage of Christians who are just utterly thrilled with the idea of singing in the choir 24-7 for all eternity. And I love those people. We need those people. I am not one of those people, right? Like that. Heaven's got to be way better than that (laughs) to eclipse the suffering that is experienced in the present age. And hopefully you're starting to see It is indeed way better than that and bigger than that. You can't draw a clear picture of what it's going to be. 
but hopefully we're able to now draw a better picture, a bigger picture, more beautiful picture of what it's going to be. Verse 19, for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. And again, that sonship language, it, it, it's very prevalent in the Exodus narrative where God calls Israel his son. And so Paul, Paul's pulling that in. He has a lot to say about how believers become sons of God in Christ, right? So creation, the natural, the natural world is waiting with anticipation for, for God's sons to be revealed. Now this is super interesting because I always think of, when, when I think of salvation, I always focus on personal freedom from sin, right? To us, the salvation is the process by which human individuals are liberated from sin through faith in Christ. And that, of course, is true. That is 100% true. But here, Paul is inviting us into an even bigger story, a story not just of individuals being liberated from sin and death through Christ, but of cosmic liberation from sin and death, of even the, the world, the, the, the creation that God has brought into existence is also personified in this passage as, as anticipating, as, as longing for, as being so ready for the ultimate redemption of God's people. And so what verse 19 is telling us is that the fate of creation, and this is the next main point on your listening guide there, the fate of creation, the natural world, is bound up with the fate of God's children. The fate of creation is bound up with the fate of God's children. And it's really, really important, I think, for us to know that Paul did not come up with this. This is not new. This theme is hot and heavy all the way through the prophets. We saw it very clearly when we looked at those passages in the book of Isaiah a few weeks ago. Over and over and over, the biblical prophets looked ahead to a new heaven and a new earth when all of creation would experience God's perfect shalom along with his people. You remember that passage where babies are playing in cobra pits and nobody's worried about it, <laughs> right? Those are the kinds of metaphors that we get in the Old Testament. So Paul is, is deeply saturated in the prophetic hope of the Old Testament scriptures. And it comes out here in Romans chapter 8. This is like the New Testament version of those new creation passages that we read a few weeks ago. Now, again, please note how verse 19 doesn't make a whole lot of sense if God plans to snatch us all away so that he can burn the whole thing down. 
If we're just, if we're just passing through on our way to our eternal sky mansions, and what goes on down here, who cares? Good riddance. That, that mentality, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the language here. It doesn't fit the language of the Old Testament and the way it talks about the age to come because there's a, there's a positive, hopeful anticipation. There's an excitement. Um, as Paul personifies creation, he personifies it as looking forward to the final resurrection of believers because that will signal the resurrection of creation itself. Look at verse 20. He kind of builds on this idea. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. So he's expanding that idea of how the fate of creation is bound up with the fate of God's children. And here we have a very clear Genesis 1 through 3 throwback. We got to understand Genesis 1 through 3. We're going to have a really hard time understanding the rest of the Bible. It's so, so important. And so Paul is bringing us back again to those first few pages of our Bibles. Now, based, based on what you know of Genesis 1, how does God feel about the world he created? What does he have to say about it? There's a word that gets repeated, a phrase. Good, it's good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. It repeats six times. The seventh time, it is very good because there's humans in it, right? Who does he appoint to work, to rule, to expand the garden? Adam and Eve, mankind. They're representative figures of all of mankind. So in the beginning, we've talked about this, heaven and earth overlap in the most beautiful way. Heaven and earth are not the same thing, but they overlap in the most beautiful way. God and humans are partnering together to accomplish what we've been calling in this study, Plan A. I think I wrote, did I write Plan A there again for you? I think it's a little important. That's why I keep writing it for you. Here's Plan A, an earthly kingdom ruled by human imagers in a cosmic temple where God dwells with humans who act as priests in a special heaven and earth place called Eden, which God desires to expand throughout the whole world. Well, this plan is going great until three chapters in. <laughs> so it doesn't, last, it doesn't last very long. We get to Genesis 3 and humans decide they don't really want to be managers. They want to be shareholders. They want to have authority that ought to only belong to God, and that's the authority to define good and evil on their own terms. So they want to be able to say, this is what we think is good, and this is what we think is evil, right? Now, the human project, I mean, I think, I'm like, okay, God, why did you make it to where they had such an option, right? But if you think about it, and it, it takes a more philosophical mind to go there, but the human project could only succeed if humans were free to choose. It's the only way it could succeed. God didn't make a bunch of robots. He made humans, right? And so he allows this choice. He allows the managers to become 
the shareholders, really bad shareholders. And in doing so, he, using the language that Paul uses here, he subjects creation, his beautiful, good world full of potential. He subjects creation to futility. Your translation might say frustration. Now, I have a couple of illustrations for you from our world that might help you, um, might, might, might help kind of drive this home. First illustration. My sweet mother-in-law, she is genuinely one of the most kind people I have ever met. Very generous. And she also loves to propagate plants and has been trying to give me one of her plumeria plant babies for quite a while now. Every time I go over, April, you, I really want to give you one of these plumerias. They're doing really well. You can, it'll, it'll do great. It'll do great in your yard. The thing is, and when I keep trying to tell her, and the reason why I haven't, I haven't, I haven't received one of her plants is because I haven't kept a plant alive in my entire life. I just haven't. Like, and I even brought an example. So this little guy has been in my office for like eight months. And he's looked like this for eight months. Not only am I bad at taking care of plants, I'm apparently bad at housekeeping as well. Because this... And maybe because it's the pot is cute, and so I don't feel as compelled to clean it up, but this is, I, I committed to myself, this is not going back in my office like this. But yeah, this is what happens when plants enter my care. So there's not even the slightest chance that a plumeria, which are, I mean, this, this had a tag on it that said, hardy. <laughs> And I read that as, April can't kill it. That is not what that means. Okay. So there's no way, there's no way. I know at least plumeria. My mom and sister-in-law, they sit and they'll have like hour-long conversations about their plumerias. I'm like, I don't know what I, I leave. I'm like, I don't belong here. Um, so I know I couldn't take care of one of those. It would for sure die. And so I keep telling her, no, no, do do your plants a favor and, and give them to literally anyone else. Anyone else. Because if she were to drop one of those thriving plumerias at my house, it would immediately be subjected to futility. <laughs> the poor thing would probably never bloom again. Just like this little plant. I got it from the nursery. It was green. It was happy. It was good. It was very good. And then it entered my house. The second it entered my car on the way home, it was subjected to frustration. And look at what happened to it. Anyway, it's still a cute pot. That's right. Yes, that's right. Now let's say... Let's say my mother-in-law snuck into my backyard one day. She's so generous. April needs this so bad. I have to give things away. And so she sneaks in. She, she makes me the new owner of this plumeria plant. This new, this plumeria, it's now in my backyard. It's subjected to futility. 
how, how would we be able to rid that plumeria from its bondage to decay? That's right. We would not destroy it. We wouldn't say, oh, this, this plumeria is subjected to futility. It's in bondage to decay. I guess we just throw it in the dumpster. No. You would want to, you would liberate that plant by placing it under the care of a true and better gardener, right? My mother-in-law, yeah, she could move in. She's very helpful. She'd be a joy to have. That's the ultimate good for which the plumeria plant would long. That's what Paul's saying of creation. The second humans went from managers to shareholders, the natural world was subjected to futility. It was subjected to frustration. It was in bondage to decay because we're not the best caretakers. We're just not. One more illustration to help drive this home. Have you ever had a favorite restaurant that came under new ownership and over time it starts to go downhill? Oh, I hear the groans. The groans. It's, the, it's just, I'm not going to say it's the worst. It's a total first world problem. But it stinks when that happens. It really stinks when that happens. Um, over time, the food just isn't as good. The bathrooms are never really clean anymore. The employees look more and more miserable every time you go back. Same menu, same chairs and tables, same decor. But the quality just, it just tanks over time. What do we say of a restaurant like that? We say it's fallen under bad management, right? And because of that, this restaurant that was once thriving and had the best food and one of your favorite places to go, the place you craved all the time, it has been subjected to futility so that it's no longer able to live up to its full potential because it's being managed by people who are not good at their job. That's what God has allowed to happen to his creation. Now, you have a restaurant you love, falls under bad management. What needs to happen to that restaurant? A lot of times it does close, but I don't think there's any people getting together. It's like, let's burn it down. No, I, I think, I think this needs a new owner. This needs somebody who knows what they're doing to come in and, and allow it to, to come in and restore its former glory. And that's exactly what God promises to do with creation. Creation itself will be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. He will restore it to its full glory. What happened in the Exodus is going to happen to God's people and to the created world. Now, if you're not quite convinced that Paul is riffing on the Exodus theme, um, you become pretty convinced in the next verse because we see the word groaning. It shows up. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we believers, we also groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. All right, while I'm finishing this, 
If somebody wants to go to the back, I forgot my little book. I have, there's a C.S. Lewis book on my, my table back there. One of y'all want to go get it for me? All right, just bring it up here. It's called The, La- the Last Battle. Yes, it's just a little paper. Okay, thank you. All right, so here's the word. Here's the word we started with, thank you. Groaning, lifted straight out of Exodus chapter two. And again, I wish we had time to lay out the full breadth of what Paul's doing with the Exodus theme from, from five through eight. It's pretty cool. Just take my word for it. This groaning, he wants, he wants us hyperlinking back. He wants us hyperlinking back to Exodus chapter two. And the reason he wants us hyperlinking back is because one of the main points he's making is that the Exodus story is our story. The Exodus story is our story. The future hope for the Christian and for creation is redemption, freedom, liberation from the bondage to sin and all of its effects. Now take a look at that phrase. Uh, Verse 23 says the redemption of our bodies. Redemption of our bodies. He's, He's talking about the resurrection, right? That point on our timeline um, that coincides with, with the day of the Lord, with the consummation of the kingdom. Now, again, depending on your view of the millennial kingdom, you might see the resurrection as happening in two stages. That's a really valid way to, to, to view the resurrection. Um, but either way, the resurrection is, is this, this culminating ultimate event, um, the bodily resurrection of believers that leads to the, the, the age to come. It leads to... Um, eternity. And just as Jesus rose bodily, we talked about this when we studied uh, 1 Corinthians, just as Jesus rose bodily, we will rise bodily and we will live in that body, that oak tree body, right? We're acorns now. We're going to live in that glorified oak tree body in a fully restored creation that all indicators point to is here on earth for all eternity. And this, of course, is what we see in those other passages that um, I had you focus on this week in your homework. Acts 3, 21. It says, heaven must receive him, the Messiah, until the time of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about through his holy prophets, like Isaiah, right? who God spoke about through his holy prophets from the beginning. Ephesians 1, 9 through 9 and 10 says, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time. And here's the plan, to bring everything, to bring everything together in Christ. What does he mean by everything? Well, here's what he means. Things in heaven and things on earth. In him, he's going to restore everything in Christ. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace. And this is where Paul brings in, how did this happen? Through his blood shed on the cross. The cross and the resurrection, that's how. That's how this liberation takes place. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 28. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him. And this is, this is the, 
the part that fits in with Romans 8 here, so that God may be all in all. It's at that time when the words of Isaiah will be fulfilled. Listen again to these words of Isaiah. Just listen. It says, the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The calf and the young lion and the fattened calf will be together. And a child will lead them. And the cow and the bear, once enemies, they will graze. Their young ones will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit and nobody will freak out. (laughs) A toddler will put his hand in the snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain because the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. You see, God's ultimate intention for the physical world is not corruption, that's temporary, and it is not destruction. That is not the story the Bible is telling. God's ultimate intention for the physical world is not corruption or destruction, it's new creation. It's heaven and earth overlapping as they did in the very beginning. And just as it is impossible to know exactly what our resurrected bodies will be like, what will be the same about them, where will there be some continuity, what will be different, we can only imagine what the new creation will be like, right? So Jesus, again, is our one and only prototype. There were some things about him that were the same. There were some really significant things about him that were very different post-resurrection, And that'll that'll be true of our world as well. What will be the same? What will be different? I don't know. I don't know. We have to kind of harness our biblically informed imaginations for that. There will be continuity. There will be discontinuity. It's anybody's guess what will be what. I will say that I am way comfortable I think I even have you do this in the last week. I'm very comfortable for my own self. I love to travel. There's so many things in the world I want to see. Time is getting shorter. Money is definitely getting shorter. Some of these natural phenomenon, these just beautiful mountain ranges I want to see, these beautiful places in the world that, you know, they've been there. I'm really comfortable making myself a new creation list. Like, I don't even make bucket lists anymore. Like, new creation, if, if we will, in fact, be in a fully restored earth for all eternity, man, if I don't make it to Banff in this life, I can make it there in the age to come. I can. I'll probably be better able to tolerate winter then anyway. So, <laughs> right? And the airlines won't be so messed up. I don't know, maybe Jesus just appeared in rooms. I don't know, you guys. I'm not saying, I'm not saying. I'm just saying it's pretty cool it's pretty cool to imagine. It's pretty cool to imagine. We got to hold all of those imaginations with really loose hands because we don't know. Uh, but again, that's one of the reasons why I recommend Randy Alcorn's book to people. And I've recommended it again. Again, it may not be your thing to read it from cover to cover. It's like, it's like that big. It's big. But he has a section toward, I think it's like the whole last half of the book. He just answers those questions 
Uh, will, will our pets be in heaven? Uh, will we be able to travel in heaven? Well, I mean, just all those questions. And he doesn't have the, the, the dogmatic answer either. But man, that, that man has soaked in the scriptures and he's been given a really incredible childlike imagination. And those two things combined, that's the kind of person you need teaching you about heaven. That's the kind of person you need teaching you about. You've got to be able to harness some childlike wonder and imagination because we have a very um, broad outline. We have a skeleton. So you've got to kind of fill it in, hold it loosely, um, but let it excite you. Let it excite you. For now, the topic of heaven, because it's, there's a lot, of, quite a lot more question marks, I think, than periods right now. Um, it's a topic that's actually more suited for poets and storytellers than it is for scholars and academics. And I'm learning that. I'm realizing eh, it's not something that I can really put on all my charts and graphs that I love so much. <laughs> this is something for the storytellers. And so I want to close by um, letting one of the great storytellers of our, of our time, C.S. Lewis, chime in. Now, <laughs> C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series ends with a very platonic view of heaven, right? So all the people are cast up, and he was held really strongly to Plato's forms, if you've studied Plato at all. Anyway, but if I take a few passages out of context, which I feel like I can do with Lewis, I don't want to do that with scripture, but I do think these passages are just going to, I read them and I'm like, oh my goodness, that's so helpful. That's so helpful in helping me imagine what it might be. And so I want to, um, I want to read this because I, I think it captures the wonder, the wonder of the full restoration of all things that scripture indicates. All right, so I am going to, little story time with April. Are you ready? All right, forgive me because these, Letters are small and I'm getting older. I'm going to try. Okay. Says, but look there. She pointed southward to their left and everyone stopped and turned to look. Those hills, said Lucy, the nice woody ones and the blue ones behind, aren't they very like the southern border of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund after a moment's silence. Why, they're exactly like. Look, there's Mount Pyre with its forked head, and there's the pass at, into Archenland and everything. And yet, they're not like, said Lucy. They're different. They have more colors on them, and they look further away than I remembered. And they're more, more, I don't know, more like the real thing, said Lord Diggory softly. And suddenly Farsight the eagle spread his wings, soared 30 or 40 feet up into the air, circled around and then alighted on the ground. Kings and queens, he cried, we have all been blind. We are only beginning to see where we are. From up there, I've seen it all. Eden's Muir, Beaver's Dam, and the Great River, and Kerr, Paraval, until shining on the edge of the eastern, still shining on the edge of the eastern sea. Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. And then a little further on. So it is hard to explain how the sunlit land was different from the old Narnia as it would be to tell you how the fruit of that country taste. Fruits of that country taste. 
Perhaps you'll get some idea of it if you, if you think like this. You may have been in a room in which there was a window that looked out on a lovely bay or a sea or a green valley that wound away among the mountains. And in the wall of that room opposite the window, there may have been a looking glass, a mirror. And as you turned away from the window, you suddenly caught sight of that sea or that valley all over again in the looking glass. And the sea in the mirror or the valley in the mirror were in one sense just the same as the real ones. And yet at the same time, they were somehow different, deeper, more wonderful, more like places in a story, in a story you've never heard but very much want to know. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it were meant for more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you will know what I mean. Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. I really believe we get into the new heaven, new earth. Earth is not dead. This is earth. This is the Genesis 1 and 2 reality that it was always meant to be. Thanks be to God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we will get there. So if there's anything that Romans chapter 8, and, and this isn't the only passage that affirms this truth, but these passages, man, they, they give us permission. And not just permission, I think they require us to imagine to harness that scripture-informed imagination. What, that, what will the no-tears place be like? Start making that new creation list. Don't need to stress about you're running out of time, you're running out of money. Because there's a sense in which you aren't running out of either. And that's so cool. So cool. All right, let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for uh, just the encouragement this passage has been to me. Uh, On so many levels, there's that encouragement for today as we are people who have plenty of reasons to groan. Um, There there are are friends in this room who are just groaning. They're in a season of groaning. And Lord, I thank you that we come to this passage and we see that, yes, creation groans and we groan, we didn't get to the part where it talks about how the Spirit groans with us and for us as he intercedes on our behalf. And so, Lord, I thank you that as we live in the already and the not yet, as we live in this in-between place where the kingdom has been inaugurated, but we're waiting for it to be consummated, and this waiting place is a hard place. It's a place of groaning, and it's a place of hardship, and it's a place of suffering. I thank you that in the person of the Holy Spirit, you've made provision for those groanings, and you are with us, and you are interceding, and you are carrying us And you are steadfast and you are faithful. And I pray that you would just encourage us with that. And Lord, as we bear up under, patiently bear up under the weight of of this, this present age, oh Lord, that our spirits would also be lifted by... Uh, just a blessed imagination of what the age to come can be and might be. 
Father, I pray that you would just um, grant us, through your Spirit, uh, a fresh wonder, a fresh awe. Uh, I know for me, now that I'm, I'm not so focused on the up there, uh, some kind of life in some kind of sky mansion, um, as I've reoriented the perspective of heaven to an earthly kingdom, where heaven and earth are somehow mysteriously overlapping, Oh, Lord, what an encouragement that's been. And God, I thank you that whatever the age to come is, whatever it looks like, I thank you for the truth that it will eclipse all the suffering that we experience now. It will be that good. It will be that beautiful. It will be that glorious. It will be that wonderful. Because we will be with you wholly and completely as we have always longed for. And so, God, I just, I pray you'd thrill our hearts, you'd encourage us, you'd carry us forward to the mission you've called us to, to, to build for your kingdom as we are here on this earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask that in the precious name of our Savior. Amen.